our reading today is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Michael, is this yours? Interesting. I think it's rare that we ask, who is God, with an open heart and an open mind, but I think it's very frequent that we ask in indirect ways. Simone Weil said, um, suffering and beauty are the two things that pierce the heart, and I think when we see beauty, whether it's musical or art or a story well told or when we suffer or when we see the suffering of others, perhaps this week as we watch the horrors of war, we're asking in perhaps indirect ways or perhaps direct ways, who is God? And good theology begins with what does God say about himself? It doesn't end there. Your questions matter, and in my experience, I'm 44, I've been an ordained pastor for 14 years, been in ministry a little over 20. All of you ask your questions in different ways, and they're good questions. But where we begin when the question is, who is God, is who does he say that he is? And this frees us, doesn't it? into a more mature theology, and you don't think of yourself as a theologian, and yet every sentence you've ever uttered that's even near something that has to do with God is a theological statement, and you're a theological animal. That's the difference between humans and creatures. Creatures worship God simply by being the creature. Humans have the choice of what to worship. And as we grow, one of the things that happens is we're not defensive towards philosophy and science that would disagree with us. We accept them as perhaps decent dialogue partners, or we can even listen to them, because we know how God describes himself, and our theology begins there. As winter finishes and we begin the process of enjoying spring, we're looking at Jesus, but we're using the whole Bible to understand Jesus. So Exodus 34, verse 6 especially, but verse 6 and 7, because they're spoken together, help us understand who Jesus is. So we're looking at a text about a thousand years before him. This is at the second giving of the law after the Israelites um, rejected God through idolatry. And then we're going to see in Mark 6, 7, 8, and 9, Jesus deliberately, and Mark wrote it down deliberately, deliberately, was acting in ways that reflect God's character, which is merciful and gracious. I'm going to say this a lot this morning, because when God describes himself, 
we want our minds and our hearts and our very being to be grasped by that, to drink it in, to understand it. Not because it's the only question we ever have about God, but that's the beginning of how we think about and conceive of God. He's merciful, which means there's harsh, harsh treatment that's deserved, that is sometimes held back out of hope and love. Love seeks the good of the other and is sometimes, therefore, merciful. Parents, you have to have a disciplined scheme with your children. It needs to include mercy. Not all the time or they won't learn. But it needs to include mercy. They understand that they might deserve punishment and you withhold it because you love them and you hope that they might grow even without that particular disciplinary measure. God is merciful and gracious. He gives us the gift first of himself and then of a guide to life in his word. And I think we receive that like a kid that gets a nonfiction book, like a teenager. Remember the, in the American president when he gives his daughter a book on the Constitution and she's like, thanks, Dad. I think that's how we receive God's gifts, especially of how to do life under the sun. And yet he is gracious to give us first and foremost himself and a knowledge of how to worship him and then a guide to life. When something good happens to you, a blessing, something fortuitous, perhaps you didn't expect it, perhaps you did, somewhere in your being you're asking who's God. When something tragic happens, you're asking. When something weird happens. And one of the helps that, that just in a, in a basic sense, is that if we, if we begin our question of who is God, asking who is he according to himself, then how does that play out into the world? Then how does that affect me? The question actually helps us then, helps us do life. So much of the Western world is individualistic, which isn't a problem in and of itself as followers of Jesus if we're aware of it and we'll... Re- we'll um, attempt to refrain from beginning the question in an individualistic way, and then we're blessed to know that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. I know we sometimes don't think he's slow to anger. I would offer to you that part of the reason that we don't think he's slow to anger is because we're beginning with how do I experience the world? More importantly... He says that he's slow to anger. The book of Job, which is the most direct answer in the scriptures to the question of suffering, hinges around our limitations in terms of experience, knowledge, and understanding, and God's lack of limitations. The whole book hinges around that. Job asks these questions. He asks them faithfully. It's faithful to ask good questions. His friends are a problem. We're not going to get into that right now. But the hinge, starting in chapter 38 of the book, is his sovereignty and knowledge and our limits. One of the problems with our grappling with the question of suffering is because we, most of us, live in a culture where the lowest, uh, the lowest bar on Maslow's hierarchy of needs is already met. Most of us don't, don't wonder where we're going to get shelter. Most of us don't wonder where we're going to get food. That breeds a certain entitlement in us. Oddly, 
cultures that are more uh, used to suffering wrestle with the question of who God is better than the cultures that don't. For me, one of my favorite um, explanations of, of parts of this question comes in the movie Bruce Almighty, which that writer and director worked for years and years and years to establish himself in Hollywood so that he could make the movies he wanted to make, in which case Jim Carrey is given power over Buffalo, New York, and it goes just as bad as it would if one of us were given power over, God forbid, any municipality in the world. The movies are wrestling of the question of our limitations and God's lack of limitations. And I say all that because I don't think we believe God when he says he's slow to anger. So we get to drink in his words and let them push back on our perceptions of the world. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 miraculously. Then he goes off to pray and the disciples are in a boat. And it's choppy. And in the text, it says that Jesus planned to walk by them. And I just caught this. I'm 44 years old. I've been studying the Bible pretty deliberately for a long time. 27 years. In college, I began to study it very directly. I just caught this. So it's okay if you didn't catch it. If you did catch it, I'd love to know when and how. Mark's giving a deliberate reference to Exodus chapter 34. When Jesus is planning to walk by the disciples in the boat, but they're scared. And so what does he do? He calms the waves. How? The waves remembered his voice from creation, to quote Sally Lloyd-Jones, and he's acting merciful and gracious and slow to anger with the disciples. Mark fully expects us to notice that, but for us in 2022, the subtlety of Matthew, Mark, and Luke need not only the book of John, which is not subtle, but it needs the rest of the scriptures, and we need to do some work in interconnecting these things. When do we see Jesus angry? So he's slow to anger. It doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. When does he get angry? In this section in Mark, he gets angry because there are teachers of the law that created a system of mild generosity that allowed them to not take care of their parents, which is commandment number five. The first other-focused commandment is about the adult generation taking care of the parental generation. It's not about obedience for young kids. That's in in other parts of the Bible. That matters. But Jesus is angry because they found, they've created a loophole to not love neighbor. Perhaps it's a little bit like when we're tempted to lie to our spouse and instead are simply silent and think that was a good way of loving them. Jesus is angry at death. If you've ever read John chapter 11, his friend dies. And our text, it's just an issue where you're translating from one language to the other. It says Jesus wept. Some translations say he was deeply moved. It's a very gut word. Jesus was angry was angry crying. One of the, there's an old uh, Greek text about a horse making the noise using the same word that Jesus uses before battle. So like a war horse snorting. He was upset. Even though he's about to heal Lazarus, he's upset because death made him angry. When's the other time he was angry? He saw people taking the place that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations 
and they made it into a strip mall. And if you read the account in John, he sat down, he was deliberate, and he braided a rope, and then he let the birds go. That's another thing, I, I noticed that about six years ago. It's not the bird's fault, right? But he was angry. And we think that God is angry at times that he's not, and we don't notice at times that he is. Do you know the first instance of God's anger in the scriptures? It's not the flood. We might think it is because the flood's a really challenging story to understand, Genesis 6 through 8. The dominant emotion that God ascribes to himself in the flood is grief. Not Babel. I've heard people explain what happened at Babel. Babel's where uh, all the humans of the world were together and they were uh, building a big tower instead of filling the earth and subduing it, which means helping it flourish. So God gave them a very strong incentive to spread out. Doesn't list him as angry. Was he angry at Abraham's disobedience to him? Nope, not listed that way. Is he angry at Isaac's passivity that he learned from his dad? Nope. Is he angry at Jacob's wild manipulative tendencies and problematic parenting strategies? Nope. Is he angry at Joseph's potential neglect of the poor? Perhaps his strange treatment of his brothers? I think we understand why Joseph treated his brothers strangely because they treated him horribly. Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, not the carpenter, you know. No, the first instance of God's anger is when he tells Moses, you're going to lead my people out of Israel. And Moses tries to get out of it over and over and over by saying, I'm not that great. And God's like, but I'm saying you're the leader. That's the first instance of his anger. Because the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. In Isaiah This is described in poetic, prophetic language. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Note the the poetic, comparative nature of the text. In overflowing anger for a moment, it's not that God doesn't get angry, but he's slow to anger. I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's all in caps, by the way, because it's the personal name of God. If you've ever wondered why your Old Testament does that, It's out of respect for traditions that don't like to say his personal name, but that's why. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And the reason it doesn't say faithfulness in your bulletin is because whenever I see the the phrase steadfast love, I want to understand it more fully. I want to be grasped by it more fully, and I want you to also, so I missed the text. So if you feel like writing in your bulletin, write, and faithfulness. This is a phrase you need to know to understand the Lord. His love doesn't quit. This isn't an emotive word in Hebrew. It's a covenantal word. His love is steadfast. This is part of the reason if you want a Bible in either of our worship services, you're going to pick an ESV and not an NIV because the NIV says love, and it's not not love, but in our culture, love most of the time makes us think of emotions. And there are emotive words to talk about love and romance and things like that in Hebrew. This word is a covenanting love, a love that does not and will not, because it cannot, quit. God would stop being God if he stopped loving. And many of you know that, and I'm so glad. I hope it encourages you. For those of you that know that, we get to remember it 
one of the most profound things that Christians do is remember the promises of God because we are prone to forget them. The idea of the sermon series is to receive Jesus' offer in Matthew chapter 11 where he says, you will find rest for your soul. No small part of that rest finding you is your mind and your heart and your being understanding God's love doesn't quit. In Mark chapter 9, James and Peter and John, the disciples, walk up with Jesus and Jesus is transfigured in front of them. He began shining very, very brightly, more brightly than anyone could bleach a garment. And he speaks with Moses and Elijah, and for many of us, our favorite part of that story is Peter's nervousness. If you remember Mark 9, Peter's like, okay, so we're going to get Elijah a tent, and Moses a tent, and Jesus, you can have a tent, and I don't need a tent because I don't know why you're shining, and these guys are here. He didn't say that part. I was just jump. I was just adding my own commentary. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. This is just after he fed the 4,000. The Pharisees demand a sign. Jesus goes and he heals a man who had been blind because of a disease. And we know that because Jesus halfway healed him and the man said, I see men who look like trees, which means he could see before. And it sounded like Jesus wasn't going to, because how did he know what a tree looked like? Unless he had vision, right? The Pharisees had demanded a sign. Who receives the sign? the one who knew their need for Jesus to give him sight. And then he's transfigured. And all of these things, Mark expects us to be better students of our Bible than we are, me included, and to catch that this is reflective of Exodus 34, verse 6. And isn't this what we long to not only receive but to give is a love that doesn't quit. Is this what we want to give our children? Isn't this why friendship makes us nervous sometimes? Whenever we're risking a little bit further into the friendship, we wonder if they're going to quit on us. Isn't it what we long to give and receive with our parents when we're adults and we're trying to figure out a, a, a mature friendship, but they remember when we peed in our pants and put it on the space heater and it filled the whole house with very bad smelling smoke. My mom loves that story. I'm like, I know, mom, you had Bible study that night. Yeah, it's true. She had Bible study that night. They were jeans. They caught on fire. It was a urine fire. That's not in my notes. Isn't that what we long to give to others? Is a steadfast love. A love that they know won't quit despite their worst moments, be it children, childish moments, or adultish moments. And this is not in the text, but I believe it to be true. It is almost impossible to offer something we have not received. If we have not received a love that is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and full of steadfast love and faithfulness, there's very little chance we're going to be able to offer it to others. 
is what we long to offer and is therefore the offer of Jesus. If you, if you go back after this sermon and you read Mark 6, 7, 8, and 9, you'll see that the offer of him is the offer to give to others what we receive through faith in Jesus. We receive his steadfast love, we're then able to offer it. I already referenced this, so we're just going to go past it. There's the verse, if you're wondering where I got the idea that Jesus deliberately echoed Exodus 34, 6, embodied it in Mark. This is the transfiguration. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, full of steadfast love and faithfulness amidst the curse. Verse 7, and I'm going to read it. I'm not going to shy away from it. The second half of it is taken out of context and misunderstood in all sorts of ways, but it is actually important. Listen to it again. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. That's essential as a comparison between what we receive without God and what life is actually like. The reason I wrote in the worship guide the curse is that's the reality. Families will break themselves apart in sin without the grace of God coming in and forgiving. And it doesn't mean that God can fix any or every or even many generational sins, but it does mean that his forgiveness and life everlasting is given to you, for not for thousands of years, for thousands of generations, which we receive both now and eternally in him. Compared to verse 6, it's almost a throwaway line, except it's a description of how the curse works. Sin flows down from generation to generation, and this is the reality unless God intervenes, and men and women turn to him instead of self for salvation and life. The most important part of verse 7 is the comparison. Did you catch it? Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Verses 3 to 4 generations. The point of this verse is both the reality of sin and a comparison of what we receive in him. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And we long to offer that. And those of you that were loved well growing up, you still need this because it's a different time. And you're not married to who your parents were married to. And you are not your parents. This is the first generation. My, my generation, Gen X, is the first generation to raise children with smartphones. We have no mentors in it. So to love well, we're going to need a lot of help from the Holy Spirit. You who were not loved well, being the opposite of your parents is not going to work. The opposite of harm is not love. It's just a different thing. What we need not to become our parents or react against who they were or weren't, but to trust the Lord, receive from him his mercy, grace, his personality, which is slow to anger and full of covenanting, never quitting love and faithfulness. 
and then to all his commands that teach us to love well. And the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, which we receive and then offer in fits and starts. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are loving that you're merciful, that you're gracious. We also praise you that you're strong, strong to subdue death, that you're the lamb who took on our sin and the lion who defeated it. In our very best moments, we long to offer this to the neighbors you've put into our lives, mercy and grace, slowed anger and abounding in real love that's for the other. Holy Spirit, would you help us to receive that from you? Perhaps, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us the places you're growing us up in love?